Okay, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, so you can make sure that you're in you're in fellowship after all the frivolity and whatever before class. Make sure you're in fellowship and ready to focus on study the Word this evening. Let's pray. Father, we just are uh, thankful that we've heard about this uh, episode, this event, where a member of the congregation got a chance to witness to a family member, and that person uh, clearly understood and expressed their faith in Jesus Christ, their faith alone in Christ alone, understanding clearly the gospel, understanding grace. Father, that's just something to be excited about. And, Father, we're thankful that we have your word to study, to help us to understand what it is that we mean when we talk about salvation and how great that salvation is and all the different uh, aspects and dimensions and especially in our study in Romans 5, the consequences, the uh, implications of that salvation, that justification that we have the moment we trust in Christ as Savior. Now, fathers, we continue our study tonight. We pray that you would help us to understand what the Apostle Paul has written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that it might be used for our edification. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, this time we are going to move forward a little bit in our study in Romans chapter 5. Last time I focused mostly on the um, uh, passage of uh, Romans 5, 6 through 8, Romans 5, 6 through 8, which is building towards a conclusion that begins in verse 9 in the English. This is translated much more than, indicating that he is building a chain of logic to help us to understand, again, the implications of justification. Just take a a look for a second back to verse 1. Back to verse 1. And we see that he that it begins in the English with the with the word therefore, and uh, somebody once observed every time you see a therefore you need to see what it's there for, and it is there for uh, the drawing our attention to a conclusion or implication from something that has been said, and in the previous chapters there has been a focus on explaining how a Christian becomes, how a person, rather, becomes righteous. This is the heart of Romans. The foundation of all of Romans is this whole concept of righteousness. How can an unrighteous, sinful person become righteous? Not in the sense of a relative righteousness in comparison to other people, but a 
perfect righteousness in comparison to the righteous standard of God's character, for that indeed is the standard. And it's interesting that if you do a word study of dikaiosune, which is the Greek word translated righteousness, that quality of being uh, perfectly righteous, that it is consistently spoken of as the righteousness of God. In Romans 3.21, Paul says, But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed. Uh, verse 22, even the righteousness of God. And then, um, again, as you read through, uh, we talk about his righteousness in verse uh, verse 26. And so the righteousness that is being addressed here is God's character. Now, what's interesting is when I was doing my study back in chapter 3, I have been reading a commentary by a Baptist scholar professor at uh, Southern Baptist Seminary in Louisville. What's interesting, just as a little side note and rabbit trail, is that uh, back in the 70s, there was a book written called The Battle for the Bible. And uh, that was written as a, to, to expose how three different denominations or three different groups were, were battling the whole concept of inerrancy and inspiration. It was written by Harold Linzel, who was a former uh, theology professor at Fuller Theological Seminary in Southern California, which in, located in Pasadena, I believe, and which was founded by Charles Fuller who some of you may know of. Most of you probably don't uh, remember him because you're not that old. Um, But Charles Fuller was a well-known radio evangelist and evangelist back in the 40s and 50s, and they thought just on the strength of his name that he would be able to establish a, a, a seminary that was an evangelical seminary, but they were kind of squishy on some of their doctrine, and he particularly became somewhat squishy when his son, uh, Daniel Otis Fuller, became uh, went off to, um, I forget where he went to school, some European uh, university to get an, his, his Ph.D., and he uh, flushed the doctrine of inerrancy and infallibility from his thinking, and then, of course, he's the heir apparent, uh, to the um, uh, to the dynasty there that they've established at Fuller Seminary in the early 50s, and when he came back, there was a lot of problems there with with uh, other professors who uh, gradually were becoming less and less convinced of biblical inerrancy and infallibility, which led to a major crisis in Fuller. Uh, Fuller just kind of went went downhill. That was example one. Example two was the battle that was going on within the uh, Missouri Synod branch of the Lutheran Church, which is a very conservative branch. They, it, at that time, it seemed like they were winning. I don't know how that ended up. And then the third was within the Southern Baptist Convention. And there were a couple of young uh, firebrands who were out to make sure that the Southern Baptist Convention did not yield any ground to uh, liberal theology. You may know some of these men or of some of these men. One was a judge from Houston by the name of Paul Pressler. And at that time, Paul Pressler was going to First Baptist. He had previously gone to Bethel and he'd gone to Baraka and a few other places. And he was really sound, and he was just a bulldog on this. 
And uh, he was backed up by a couple of other men, one of whom was a, was a guy who looked like a bulldog named Paige Patterson. And Paige, I've met Paige two or three times. I've heard him speak a number of times. And he's one of these guys who, who would have been a, a fullback on a, he may have been a fullback on a, on a football team. I mean, he's just short, squatty, bulldog-looking face. He's the kind of person who gets a, like a dog gets a bone in his mouth, he's not going to let go. And he was... Uh, an assistant pastor to W.A. Criswell, who was the pastor of First Baptist Church of Dallas. And Criswell at that time was getting uh, into his 70s, but he had a couple of younger scholars that he had been able to uh, bring into the ministry of First Baptist Dallas. One was Paige Patterson. Another is Richard Land. Sometimes you'll see Richard Land interviewed on some news show about uh, about Southern Baptist beliefs. He's been the head of the uh, denominational ethics uh, division at, for the last, I don't know, 20 years or so. Uh, but Paige Patterson eventually became, I mean, they, these guys eventually turned the tide back, and they eventually gained control of the different committees that appointed leaders and presidents to seminaries, and seminaries that looked like they were lost back in the 70s, like Southern Seminary in Louisville and later a Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary in, in North Carolina and uh, even a Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary up in Fort Worth have turned a big corner. And Page was responsible for some of that. He, the story is that he went into Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary and he began, he, uh, began to uh, change things because he wasn't going to allow uh, the faculty, and there was a large number of men on the faculty who didn't believe in inerrancy to, to survive. And so it's wonderful to see how God works things out. It, this was just one of those Daniel 1 kind of circumstances. And so he's the president, and the liberals on the faculty decided that they, they wanted to protest uh, what he was going to do in his new policies. And so they decided that the way to really get to him, because there were so many of them, that they would just cripple the school so they would all go in in mass and they would resign. And, of course, they were so filled with their own arrogance and their own importance that they thought, well, the school can't survive. It's a week or so before the semester begins, so we'll all turn in our resignations and he, he, he can't accept them because this, the, the, the fall term will collapse. He accepted every one of them, said, thank you very much. You all can go now. We will rebuild the seminary now. So he moved up his, his schedule about three or four years. And uh, but he immediately went out and hired conservatives to fill those slots very rapidly because God provided, and he did such a fabulous job turning Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary around that about... I don't know, it's probably been six or seven years now, uh, he was uh, appointed the president of Southwestern uh, Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth, and he's doing the same thing there, gradually weeding out, uh, weeding out, the, um, uh, weeding out the liberals. And so we have this, um, I don't remember exactly how I got off into talking about that. Oh, it was the battle for the Bible. And, and, uh, it's important to understand how, how crucial it is to maintain our belief in the, uh, in the text of scripture and the inspiration and infallibility of scripture. And so we look at passages like we have here in Romans chapter six, uh, 
I mean, excuse me, Romans chapter 5, and we have to pay attention to the grammar because this is what uh, God the Holy Spirit has emphasized through inerrancy. So the very words are inspired by God. So verse 1 begins, therefore, having been justified by faith. We've, we've, he's explained justification by faith. He's explained righteousness of God. I know what I was saying. I was talking about that phrase, righteousness of God. This commentary I've been reading by Tom Schreiner, who is quite erudite, he's not right on the gospel, though. He's right on some things. This is where, the reason I'm bringing this up is I get questions every now and then from, from men who are pastors. I'll recommend a commentary, and they'll say, what do you think I ought to buy it? I say, well, it depends on whether or not you can handle it. I mean, here's a commentary. This is, the value of Schreiner's commentary is because he just cannot abide the teaching of N.T. Wright, otherwise known as N.T. Wrong. And so he does a, a great job interacting with that wrong position on what justification is. But in other areas, because he comes from a very high Calvinistic view, his lordship salvation mentality really leaks in. And, in fact, he has been quoted as saying that um, a person is really justified uh, by works. I mean, he's in, in other things, because if you're truly saved, you will produce works in keeping with your justification. So you have to read some of these scholars very carefully. They're very good in some areas, and they're not so good in other areas. And just because you like somebody on the first five pages, you better not get sucked into what they say on the next five pages. But it surprised me when I read this that, that when, he's taught, when he interprets righteousness of God, it's not God's righteousness that it's being talked about here, but it's the righteousness that's imputed, which he sees as different from God's righteous character, which to me just didn't make sense. I mean, every now and then you run into these odd views out there, and I bring them up to people because it, it, it says something, you, you never know who's going to be listening and who's going to have run into this, and who's had their thinking muddled a little bit over over something like this. But this is talking about God's character, the righteousness of God's character, and it is that righteousness that is imputed to us. But for some people, it's they make a distinction between those, and for the life of me, I can't figure out why they would do that. So it is that concept of righteousness or justification, that declaration of a person's righteousness that is by means of faith. Now, I want you to notice, and in your Bible, you may want to circle the phrase, having been justified in verse 1, because it is going to appear again in verse 9. So if you look down to verse 9, Paul comes back and he uses, again, he uses a... A, an inferential particle, that means a, a, part, a particle that, that brings about, emphasizes a conclusion. He says, much more than having now been justified by his blood. We have the same word, same phrase, having now been justified. Everything between 1 and 9 is something of a digression in order to help us to understand uh, what God has done in providing us that justification and the implications of it for, for our hope and confidence. And we spent a lot of time talking about hope and that it's the idea of a confident expectation of the fulfillment of God's, God's promise in the future. 
So as we look at just the flow of Paul's uh, Paul's thinking here, we see that in verses uh, 6 through 8, the emphasis is on God's grace and that God's grace was not only not based on any good thing that God saw in us, but it was it, the, just the opposite is true. It's based totally on God's character because there was nothing good that God saw in any of us. He's not providing salvation because we're uh, potentially so wonderful. He's not providing salvation because we're such uh, uh, nice people. And it's really sad today. We, we get getting we're getting so far away from our. Um, Christian biblical roots in this country that fewer and fewer people understand the, the, what the Bible, what, what theologians call the doctrine of total depravity. And total depravity doesn't mean that everybody's depraved in an, in an extreme sense. It just means that every aspect of a person's nature has been corrupted by, by sin. We're all under condemnation and therefore we're inherently Bad. We have a propensity to evil, and if we are left to our own devices without external controls of, uh, of authority or, or God, that we will always default to a uh, sinful direction. And that's really important to understand because when you look at what's happening in terms of what some have called the culture wars, others may others may call it political wars, others may have different terms for it, and you see the uh, trajectory that's occurred in this country over the last 20 years, and people talk about how there's a lack of civility in politics, there's a lack of civility in uh, in, in in the country, and people uh, don't know how to sit down of opposing views and talk to each other. It's because they've become more and more polarized based on some fun underlying fundamental factors. And Thomas Sowell, who uh, has his doctorate in economics, writes a weekly column and has written a number of books, one of which is called Conflict of Vision, did a, has done a great historical analysis of what makes the difference between a, cons- a person who has a what we would call a conservative orientation to the issues of life and someone who has a liberal approach to the issues of life. And and he starts off in his introduction, which says everything you almost need to know about the book, where he talks about if you ask, if you had a crowd, let's say we, we just went out off the street and pulled a couple of hundred people in here, and we said, okay, everybody who believes in the death penalty get over here, and everybody who is against the death penalty get over here. And so there would be a division. Then we'd say everybody who believes that the go- government is the solution to the problem rather than government being the problem, uh, those who believe the government is the solution to the problem get over here, and those who believe the government is the problem get over here. Very few people would change sides. If you said if you believe that the government needs to provide uh, a, a healthy, healthy safety net financially to everybody or they need to provide uh, health care for everyone, then uh, line up. Those who pr- provide health care over here, those against it over here, very few people would change sides. And what that indicates is that, there, that even though these issues are not 
do not share the same details. They're not related to one another. There are some underlying belief. There's an underlying belief system that is what determines how they respond to each of these different and distinct issues. And those who are conservative have a view of man that uh, is less than positive. They believe that human beings are basically flawed and corrupt to one degree or another, that man is basically evil. And the liberals are those that believe that man is basically good. So they're very trusting of government because, after all, the government is made up of wonderful people who have your best interests at heart because people are basically good. Problem is, is that the founders, the founding fathers who wrote the Constitution Declaration of Independence, whether they were Christian or not, were all influenced by a, by a theistic worldview at the time. And so they had a view of man that was that he was basically evil and that, in the words of Lord Acton, absolute power corrupts absolutely. And so you want to limit the power given to those in authority because uh, as water rolls downhill, they will inevitably... Uh, come along and and uh, abuse that power and authority, and there needs to be checks and balances on it. So that's why, fundamentally, people who are, quote, liberal, who, ha- who have their views affected by a positive view of man as being basically good, are completely at odds with the Constitution. And you wonder why it is that they want to make it a living document and want to change everything. It's because they don't believe that the nature of man, the nature of government, or the nature of society is what the founding fathers believed it was. They have completely changed, and they are really completely out of bounds, But uh, so they're trying to change things. This is what sets up the polarization uh, in our in our culture. So it's very important to understand that the Bible teaches that man is a sinner, and I pointed out last time through looking at several words used in Romans 5, 6, uh, excuse me, Romans 6, 7, and 8, that uh, we have words like uh, we were without strength, uh, ungodly, uh, sinners, and that this is how God describes all human beings. These are not complementary terms. God does not have a high view of the human race because God understands the dimensions of the corruption that has occurred because of sin, and that doesn't mean that men can't do relatively good things. Jesus told the disciples that uh, you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children. See, that's a great verse to understand because it points out, number one, that Jesus understood that there basic nature was to be evil, but that despite the fact that they have been corrupted, they know how to do relatively good things. They just can't do good or righteous deeds at the level of, uh, of what God has, has provided. And so in these verses that we looked at, I looked at last time, uh, we're told that, that our status prior to justification, was being without strength, being ungodly, and being sinners. And that 
despite the fact that we were in that negative position, God sent his son to pay the penalty for us as our substitute. And I talked a little bit about the great doctrine of substitutionary atonement that Christ died uh, for us in our place. Now, having established that, Paul sort of made a little diversion in his thinking there uh, in order to remind us of this tremendous exhibition of God's love. And because that love is related to his, his, the, the, the confidence that we have uh, in God. And keep, you ha- the, the word that you have to keep your eye on in this whole section of 1 through 11 is on this hope that doesn't disappoint that's in verse 5. Uh, we have a hope that doesn't disappoint because, as Paul says in verse uh, verse 5, the love of God has been poured out in our hearts, and that happened at salvation by the Holy Spirit who was given uh, given to us. And then he explained the depths of this love. So now that we understand the depths of this love that, uh, that God has uh, exhibited in salvation, we now can go forward from that to understand uh, the certainty it gives us in the midst of all of the ups and downs and problems and issues of life and all the times that you may doubt your salvation or doubt God's plan for your life or doubt that, uh, that he's awake, he's too busy paying attention to the soldiers in Iraq or Afghanistan and he sort of overlooked you. Uh, this reminds you that you shouldn't be so self-absorbed that God hasn't forgotten you. So the model here again is what happens in salvation. And the um, more I, I go along, grow and come to my understanding of Scripture, the more I see how frequently the Apostle Paul always goes to what happened at the cross and what happened at our salvation when we became a new creature in Christ, when we're justified, and and really unpacking that to help us to understand how that should change what we do today, how we think and how we live as a as a Christian. And I don't think that most of us spend uh, nearly enough time just stopping to think about all that happened to us at salvation all that was that god did for us and thinking about it in terms uh, in a more personal sense where it has a uh, a little more of an impact upon us now um i on the next slide i left out i've lost verse nine somewhere my uh program that I used, keynote program that I used at 5.30. And this, these programs just updated, and previously they used to save copies, you know, like every five minutes. The program crashed. I lost everything I'd done the previous two hours. So I had to redo it in about 15 or 20 minutes, and I didn't get verse 9 in there. So you've got it in front of you. Much more then. What happens here in this verse is really important to understand because it's at this point that uh, the Apostle Paul uses an argument that is called uh, an a fortiori argument. 
an a fortiori argument. That's spelled A uh, and then a second word, fortiori, F-O-R-T-I-O-R-I. This is a Latin phrase which means from the stronger, like a fort, from the fort. And the fort refers to the fact that you talk about a strong uh, conclusion, uh, something that is true, something that is very strong, and then if that's true, then something of lesser significance must also be true. This is a very common type of argument used uh, used in logic. In fact, uh, the rabbis had a view of this. They called it a uh, Cole the Homer argument, which means light and heavy, a Cole the Homer argument. And another uh, Latin phrase used for, to describe this is a argumentum a minori ad maius. So you're arguing to a, from a, to a minor position on the basis of a stronger uh, conclusion. And so the strong conclusion that is stated here in verse 9 is that we have been justified by his blood. We have been justified by his blood, and this is a, an aorist passive participle. The aorist indicates that this is something that, is, that has happened previously, and the passive voice indicates that it is something that we receive. We do not perform that action. We don't justify ourselves. We receive the declaration of justification from God, and it is adverbial in the sense of a causal statement, so it should be translated much more than because we have now been justified. Now, that's the strong statement. Now, to the justification is the strong statement because it's very difficult for God to take a rebellious, ungodly, weak, unrighteous uh, sinner and to give him righteousness and to make him or declare him to be righteous. That is a very difficult thing to do. And God did that in his plan by providing this substitute, a substitute who was in himself perfectly righteous. And so by virtue of his substitution, his perfect righteousness could then be made available to anyone who believed on him. And we studied this under uh, the doctrine of imputation that Christ's righteousness is then credited to anyone who believes in him for salvation. And it is on the basis of that credited righteousness that God declares us to be righteous. He declares us to be uh, justified. So that's an extremely difficult thing for uh, to accomplish is to declare and to uh, provide righteousness to those who are undeserving and who are inherently unrighteous. So if that is the hard thing to do, and God has accomplished that, then the lesser thing is that, well, if God's done that, then we have a certainty of a future salvation. If God's already provided us with justification, then, of course, something of lesser difficulty being uh, saved from the wrath to come is something that God can uh, uh, provide because the more difficult thing, the justification of ungodly sinners, has been accomplished. So something of less difficulty is 
uh, easier to provide, and that is the salvation, our salvation from wrath through him. Now, I want you to notice a couple of things in this verse. First of all, the means of justification as well as the means of salvation from wrath. Both are through Jesus Christ. The first phrase is stated to be by his blood, and this clearly emphasizes that, it, that his blood is the means of this justification. But we often run into people who have uh, somewhat confused notions of what the phrase blood of Christ means. In fact, this last week, I, got, I received an email from someone asking, uh, uh, asking this question, and it was a quote from Lewis Berry Chafer, who did not quite get this right. It's often been emphasized within the uh, ranks of fundamentalism that it is the liter- they took the blood of Christ as a literal phrase. How, however, we should understand the phrase blood as a metaphor. It's not talking about literal blood or the literal shedding of blood, but that the violent shedding of blood is a metaphor for uh, the loss of life. Leviticus says that uh, life is in the blood. So blood is used as a metaphor for life. So the shedding of blood means the shedding or the loss of life. We see examples of this kind of figurative use in, in places like the covenant with Noah, where God said, whoever sheds man's blood, meaning murder, uh, by man his blood should be shed. Well, that's not being restricted to only a violent death where somebody uh, lost their life from exsanguination. It could refer to somebody who was uh, hit over the head and just had uh, brain trauma and died. It could refer to somebody who was poisoned. It could refer to any number of ways of dying or murder that were not based on exsanguination. Uh, but the phrase shedding of blood was a metaphor for the shedding or the loss of life. So blood equals life, and this is documented in in um, uh, Greek lexicons such as uh, the Bauer Danker, Arndt Gingrich uh, lexicon recognizes the phrase blood of Christ is indeed a, a metaphor. But here we have a great verse to show its metaphorical significance because verse 9 is parallel to verse 10. So I'm going to put verse 10 up on the board here. And I'll read verse 9 and then verse 10. Verse 9 says, Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Now in verse 10, Paul is going to transition his argument forward, and he's going to change the terminology from justification to reconciliation. And he is going to talk about... um, uh, being saved from wrath is parallel to being saved by his life. So what we see here is in verse 10 where we read, For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. See, the previous verse said we're justified by his blood. Blood and the death of his son are synonymous concepts. So that just shows what I've taught for years is that the phrase blood of Christ is just a metaphor for the death of Christ. 
And that's how this, this uh, figure of speech was used throughout, uh, throughout the scriptures. So verse 9 says that justification is by means of that substitutionary death. It's interesting that if you look carefully at verses 6 through 11, verse 6 says that Christ died as a substitute for the ungodly. Verse 8 says that Christ died as a substitute for us. That means we're ungo- we were ungodly, just in case you missed it. In verse 9, uh, we have another reference to his death. We're justified by his blood. Verse 10, we have another reference to his death. We're reconciled through the death of his son. And then in uh, verse 11, there's another reference to this as that we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom now we have received the reconciliation. So there's a reference or allusion to the death of Christ in every verse, but the but verse 7, which was sort of a, an illustration that it's rare for human beings to die for another human being, no matter how righteous or good they might be. So the focus, obviously, in these verses is on that death of Christ. So it's clear that phrases like died for the ungodly, uh, Christ died for us, we're justified by his blood, then uh, we're reconciled through the death of his son, all of these refer to the same thing. So it's clear from this as an, as an illustration that, that this, this uh, phrase, by his blood, indicates that it's by his death. It's just a figure of speech. Now, the second part of this is that um, Paul says that we have now been ju- because we have now been justified by his blood. That's a that's this 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 past tense action. It's already happened. We have now been or because we have been justified. So we're now in a status of justification. And then he says we shall be saved from the from wrath through him. And that phrase, uh, shall be saved, is a future uh, passive indicative. We receive the act of being saved or delivered. The word sozo is the verb there, which means to save or to deliver or even to heal in many passages, that we shall be saved from wrath through him. So here again we have that other phrase indicating um, means or the instrument by which God accomplishes something, and neither of these are talking about the cause of salvation. That's a, that would use different vocabulary, different grammar. Jesus' death is the means by which God uh, is able to save us. I believe that the ultimate cause of our salvation is the grace of God. That the love of God is the ultimate cause of our salvation, but it doesn't operate apart from intermediate means, and the intermediate means uh, involves the death of Jesus. But it's interesting, we who have now been justified, future tense, shall be saved. Now, how many times have you talked to somebody and you said, you said, are you saved? Well, according to the way Paul uses the term saved here in Romans chapter 5, saved is in the future, not in the past. So be very careful how you read the word saved in Scripture. In Romans, Paul never uses the word sozo to describe what we call phase one justification. 
he always uses sozo to refer to primarily phase two salvation, that is being saved from the power of sin. And a few times he uses it uh, for phase three salvation, future glorification when we're saved from the presence of sin, when we're absent from the body and face to face uh, with the Lord. Now he uses this phrase, we shall be saved from wrath. Now what is wrath? Now, I would suggest that uh, for most people, when they read the phrase wrath, they think that this is a reference to eternal judgment. In fact, there are numerous uh, theologians and commentaries that think this, and usually that is related to their theological framework that they interpret, and uh, when they come to the text with a covenant theological framework rather than a dispensational framework. They come to the text with this uh, replacement theology framework, which uh, dominates most systems of thought or theology rather than dispensationalism. They, they, they can only think in terms of wrath as something future. But wrath is not necessarily something future. Hold your place here. This is another one of those slides I lost. I want you to skip back to Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. This is the first use of the word wrath. Now, it's a general rule of interpretation of the Bible. It's not an absolute rule because there are exceptions, but it's a general rule that the first time a word is used in a particular letter or book, uh, it sort of defines for us the meaning of that word in that book. Sometimes the first uh, five or six times a word is even used in the Bible really shapes its meaning for the rest of the rest of the scripture. So the word wrath in some places does refer to something in the distant future. For example, in First Thessalonians two nine, we are saved from the wrath to come. I think that's a term for the tribulation. But here, this is not a term for the tribulation. And nowhere do am I convinced that it is a term for uh, future eternal condemnation. It is a, as we studied this in Romans 1, is that wrath is a term to describe God's judgment or divine discipline on human beings in time uh, and within history, not after or at the conclusion of history into eternity. And so just, so wrath may be the discipline of God tomorrow because of uh, bad decisions made today, or it may be something that's a little more distant in life, uh, but it's not uh, not something after life in the future. Verse 18 of Romans 1, Paul writes, For the wrath of God is revealed, present tense, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now, ungodliness usually, as we looked at last time, usually describes the character and the lifestyle and the thought system of unbelievers. And in one passage in Timothy I pointed out last time, uh, and uh, I think it's in 2 Timothy 1, Paul warned uh, Timothy uh, that that certain behavior was uh, would lead to, for such behavior is ungodly. It's the behavior of an unbeliever. It's not the behavior that is that of a, of, a, of a believer. So the behavior, the lifestyle, the unrighteousness of an unbeliever, uh, his rejection of God 
is going to bring about divine discipline in time. And that's what the wrath of God describes. Now, there are some uh, subsequent passages, for example, uh, probably across the page for you or maybe the next page. In uh, Romans 2, 5, we read, But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, that is, those who are unbelievers, uh, you're treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Now, in that verse and in verse 8, it's talking about a more eschatological future judgment. But all other uses of wrath in Romans have to do with here and now. Let me give you some reasons for that. In 2, 5, and 8, even there, the most natural reference to wrath is that this is something in time because it should be governed by the first mention of wrath that is laid out in Romans 1, 18. And since that, since the rest of Romans 1 and on into chapter 2 is an outworking, an explanation of how God's wrath is revealed, it seems to be talking about something in time, not something, something in the, in the future. So this seems to argue that this, that Romans 2, 5, and 8 should actually be taken to mean uh, a wrath that is brought about not in the day of judgment, that sounds like future, as I just said, but it is really talking about when God, uh, after his uh, long suffering has had enough, brings divine discipline on the life of the, of the unbeliever. So contextually, we have to let the context define, define the meaning of words. Um, second reason that wrath should, in, in, um, Chapter 5, verse 9 should be understood as, as temporal within our, our life is that it is con, uh, compared or contrasted in verse 10 with the fact that we shall be saved by his life. So the contrast is, verse 9, we shall be saved from wrath through him and we shall be saved by his life. Now, when you look at Romans, this phrase of life is is talking about the res, the life that we have as believers, the newness of life, as Paul talks about in Romans 6, that's based upon the resurrection life of the Lord Jesus Christ. This verse isn't talking about his physical life between the time that he was born in uh, Bethlehem and the time that he died on the cross of Golgotha. It's talking about his resurrection life. Paul makes that very clear when we, and as we will see when we get into Romans chapter, uh, chapter six. Uh, life, uh, contextually in Romans is always talking about our present experience of the fullness of life which we have been given in Christ. This is how it is used in Romans chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8, and also later on in Romans 12, chapters 12 uh, through 15. So he uses the term life and the phrase to live in terms of our phase two life as a Christian. So we are saved 
by his life because it is his resurrection life that is the basis of our being given new life. Just look across the page probably to Romans chapter 6, verse 4, describing what happens with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead, see, there's that resurrection life, raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so, we also should walk in newness of life. See, the Christian life, the Christian walk, is based on the new life that we have in Christ, based on his resurrection and the fact that we have been uh, united with his resurrection and that new life, verse 5. Now, a third thing we ought to note uh, in terms of how this life uh, theme is emphasized is that uh, the concept of death and life uh, appear together in eight verses in chapters 5 through 8, and the contrast is always between Christians who are either living in carnal death. The death there is not future eternal condemnation, but a carnal death. Remember, there's about seven different ways the Bible talks about death. There's physical death, there's spiritual death, there's sexual death, there's positional death, there's carnal death, there's eternal death. All of these are different ways in which the Bible talks about death. And so here it's talking about uh, the life-experiencing death of a believer who's out of fellowship and not walking by the Holy Spirit, walking in in darkness, and that's contrasted by the Christian that is walking in life. This is seen by a verse that's usually quoted by people out of context in um, uh, in witnessing, and that's Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. And Paul quit talking about justification in chapter chapter. Five, the first part of chapter 5, and chapter 6 is talking about the Christian life. And the wages of sin, if you're a Christian and you continue to walk in darkness and live out of fellowship on the basis of the sin nature, then what you get for that is death. Not eternal death, but you're the walking dead. You're like a zombie. You're or, or a, what I call a spiritual vampire. You're the undead, and you are uh, walking around... Uh, you have eternal life, but you're living as if you are a dead, uh, spiritually dead unbeliever. So this, the, everywhere through these chapters, it talks about death or life. It's always talking about experiencing the fullness or the abundant life that uh, we have been given in Christ. The future tense, uh, often we jump to it as, as long-term distance, which it can be, but it can also be near future that the way in which we are saved from wrath by his life is by learning to live in fellowship, walking by God the Holy Spirit, abiding in Christ, walking with him, and that is the way in which we experience that fullness of, of life. So the context helps us to understand that this is talking about the present experience of believers. Again and again we have uh, throughout Romans when Paul uses the word saved or salvation, he is uh, talking about something future. He never uses that word group, saved or salvation, in the section where he's talking about justification. 
This is the first time we run into the word, and it's referring about something uh, future that occurs because we have been justified. And so this is talking about phase two uh, salvation. As I referenced earlier in the in my introduction, uh, Earl Rodmacher's uh, frequent statements that I was saved when I trusted in Christ, and now I was saved yesterday, I was saved this morning, I was saved this afternoon, I'm saved now, I'll be saved tomorrow. He would say that because it sort of jars our senses. We're not used to using the word saved like that, but that's how Paul uses the word saved in Romans. Saved from the present uh, dominion or tyranny of sin by walking by the Holy Spirit, uh, walking in fellowship with him. Uh, with with God, so letting the power of the Holy Spirit work in our life, and because of that, then we are saved from what? What's wrath? Divine discipline in time, whether it's immediate or a little more distant. So the way to avoid uh, divine discipline in your life and divine judgment uh, as a result of living and walking in carnality is to what? It is to uh, confess your sin and walk by the Holy Spirit, stay in fellowship, abide in Christ, and that, and apply the word, and that will uh, save you from, from uh, wrath. Now, Paul then goes on to build upon this in, um, in uh, this verse. He says, if when we were enemies, for, explaining this, if we were enemies, if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. See, that's laying out that stronger argument again. He uses another a fortiori argument from the strong to the weak. If when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God, how much more, because we have been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So again, he uses it in that same future, that, that, that same future tense that we are saved by his life and we've already been reconciled. We've already been justified. Now we will be saved by his life. And then he builds on top of that again in the last verse and says, and not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Now in verse, uh, in both of these verses you have, uh, well in verse 10 you have two forms of the word, uh, for reconciliation. You have an aorist passive indicative, uh, if when we were enemies we were reconciled. That's just referring to it as a general thing that happened in the past. And then we have it used a second time but as an aorist participle. So that aorist participle refers to an action that precedes the action of the main verb. So this is talking again about the fact that we have been reconciled already, and now it's talking about the present tense reality or the future tense reality of being saved by his life. And then at the end of verse 11, it refers to this action by its name, the reconciliation. So we have now already, as believers in Christ, received the reconciliation. Now, he uses reconciliation. He's transitioned from the term justification to reconciliation as the overall uh, overall term that he's describing because reconciliation is a term that relates to... Um, relates to all that has been, all that was done at the cross. And what we see here, another thing I want to point out here is in verse 11, we read 
the phrase in English translation, but we also rejoice in God. Now, have we seen that before? We sure have. If you go back to verse 2, we read, through whom, that is through Christ, whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And what do we do? We rejoice in the confidence of the glory of God. So remember I pointed out at the beginning that we begin in verse 1 with the phrase, because we have been justified by faith. He's going to draw implications from that. And one of those is this aspect of rejoicing in God. So when he comes to the end of this paragraph, notice how it ties everything together so nicely. Verse 10, he says, uh, or excuse me, verse 9, he says, much more than having, because we have now been justified, he's returning to that basic principle that he's, he's established in chapters 3 and 4, because we've now been justified, we shall be saved we sh- from, from wrath, we shall be saved by his life, and this is the basis for our joy, so that we can have real joy in this life because we come to understand how we have been delivered from the wrath, the discipline, the judgment of God that comes in time. And so this becomes a ground for our understanding of our assurance of salvation. If Christ died for sinners who were enemies of God and unable to reconcile themselves, having no merit in themselves, no value in themselves, and if God through his mercy has reconciled such sinners to himself, how much more will he be merciful to those he's already reconciled? And so if he's already reconciled you, then he will be merciful. And if he can, in other words, if God can save a sinner then the one who is already reconciled by the death of Christ will certainly escape the wrath of God and will continue to be justified no matter what happens, ending eventually in his uh, glorification. So there's an implicit argument here for uh, the assurance of salvation. I want to come back next time and just look a little bit at uh, the whole doctrine of reconciliation because it becomes the foundation for understanding the next section, which is our spiritual life. So just by way of review, four quick points. The human race is in a legal state. We're born in a legal state of hostility toward God because of Adam's sin. No fallen human being can change this state of hostility. We can't reverse it. It's impossible. We're in prison. We can't do something that has to be done by someone out of prison. Uh, The opposite that, uh, that we see in this passage of hostility or enmity is peace or harmony with God, and that status must be changed. And it can only be changed if the legal penalty is paid, and that payment is through the death of Jesus Christ, the substitutionary spiritual death, of Jesus on the cross. Now, that lays the foundation for getting into the spiritual life, and he really begins to transition to this new life in Christ starting in verse 12. But before we get there, I'll review uh, reconciliation a little bit next time. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening and to reflect upon our salvation and the dimensions of it and all that you've provided for us, our, our justification. And because we have been justified, we can now be saved and we shall be saved from uh, the consequences of sin, the consequences of failure in this life if indeed we 
live on the basis of our new life in Christ because we are new creatures in Christ. And on the basis of all of our spiritual assets, we have the ability to live not as we did before we were saved, but as a person with new life in Christ. And Father, we pray that you would challenge us with these things we've studied and that it will help us to understand and to be motivated to live for you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.